Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. So, we're back. It's wonderful to see what the Lord's doing among us. Um, I'm really looking forward to um, just the, the food distribution taking off and just for the wonderful opportunity that's going to be to connect with the community um, in real and practical ways. And um, appreciating that it's definitely the, um, the first of a, a, a number of things that the Lord's helping us to put in place to be able to connect with the community and provide common ground for the gospel in that way. So um, that's really exciting. Do ask you to keep that in prayer if you're unable to volunteer. And also do bear in mind that um, we will be needing from week to week um, donations of non-perishable goods. And so I um, encourage you to kind of have that in mind um, as we go forward and things develop. Praise God. We're in John chapter 4, episode 11, Superman HD, looking at Jesus to Christ, the Superman, the Superman, human and yet fully divine. Fully human, fully divine. We're looking at verses 43 to 54. And um, if you're anything like me, I'm sure there will be um, certain times in your life when you're able to look back on those Christmases when you had great expectations. Some of you are just thinking back to last Christmas. Um, I think back to certain, I remember there's a particular, particular Christmas, um, in my childhood that really stands out in my mind. And, um, that particular Christmas, I was really expecting a bike. You know them ones, isn't it, bro? For real. First bike was really like looking forward to my first bike. And those days, you know, it, it wasn't about, um, mountain bikes. Or, or even BMX. I'm going back, bro. I'm going back. Not even racer, you know. That's, that wasn't really what we was wanting. Chopper. And if it weren't a chopper, it was a grifter. <laughs> With the gears in the grip. Listen, you really thought that like you was on a motorbike. Gears in the grip. My friend had a grifter. Oh my gosh. So that was my expectation. And I told everybody that's what I desired. I'd, I'd, I'd wanted a bike. And um, it was going to be the grifter or the chopper. And you know, the thing about Christmas is, you kind of have a sense that of, as to whether or not you stand a chance of, of getting what you desire. You, you kind of get that like sense from your parents or whoever, like, they seem open to it. Like, I remember one time I asked my gran, right, because I grew up with my gran, for some walkie-talkies. This is now going real, real back. Asked for some walkie-talkies. And I just like the idea of kind of being, you know, like some kind of army figure with a walkie-talkie. And my excuse to my gran was, you know, you could have the other one. And when, and when you need anything downstairs, you could just call me and you don't have to shout. And, but I weren't getting that. Because there was no good vibes in response. There was no kind of affirming, hmm, maybe. There was none of that. But this particular year, when I'd asked for a bike, 
I just knew that I was going to get a bike. The question was, what kind of bike? (laughs) Now, I have to say that that year, I didn't just get one bike, but I got two bikes. Imagine that. I got two bikes, Bosey. And my, my godmother bought me a bike and um, she, she bought me a, a racer. Now you can imagine my heart was set on a chopper, if not a grifter. They're not racers. Different kind of bikes. And I had to gratefully accept what I had received. And then out of the blue which was absolutely like completely unexpected and unforeseen. I got another bike and um, that bike was from my dad. Now my dad was in and out of my life uh, in that period of my life. So I didn't really see him. I couldn't really count on seeing him at Christmas, let alone getting anything from him. And he came with a bike and, and I, I got, it wasn't a chopper. It wasn't a grifter. It was, it was actually related to the chopper. No, 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 no. If you know, listen, it was a tomahawk. Remember, remember tomahawks? This, this is for the old and grown people out here who know about the old school days. Yeah, the tomahawk. And the tomahawk was basically like a chopper with a cut down seat. And it didn't have the gears in the middle because the chopper had the gears, the gear lever in the middle. It didn't have the gears. And so I thought, okay, well, a tomahawk. In my mind, it was better than a racer, but I couldn't say that to anyone, could I? Because that's going to cause offense and so on. And yet neither of the things that I received, neither of the bikes that I received, was the bike that I really wanted. And so, nonetheless, from my expectation, I had to gratefully, and and I was very grateful actually, and my, my cousin ended up having the racer. He was a bit older than I was. And I was quite happy to just hand it off to him. And... um we would go riding as I was on my tomahawk. And I accepted that even though that which I expected was not fulfilled, I, was accept- I accepted that which I received. And in some ways, those kind of Christmas expectations can be parables of the Christian life. The way in which we're able to look to God with expectation and yet be prepared to accept that which he grants us according to his will and purpose. Knowing that he's good and that he will work all things together for good. And so let's turn to John chapter 4 as we see this played out at the conclusion of this chapter. I'll read the verses and then we'll pray. John 4 verses 43 to 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet was, has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him 
and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come up from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing grace toward your people. We thank you for revealing yourself in Christ Jesus, for revealing your heart of compassion and goodness. Lord, we pray as we meet with you in your word today that you would help us to know you better, to appreciate you more, to worship you with all of our hearts, Lord, and to trust you, Lord, that in all that you do, you do well. Speak to us, we pray. Strengthen us, we pray. Lead, guide, and direct us, we pray. In your name and for your glory. Amen. So, Brother Mark closed out the Samaritan experience for us last week as we saw the, Samar um, the Samaritans gathering around Jesus, believing on him as the Messiah, the Son of God. And what a glorious scene that is. And after being encouraged to stay with them for two days, he did just that. And in verse 43, we see that after two days of staying with the Samaritans, he departed for Galilee. And so you remember that he was making his way up north from Judea. And he was doing so because the Pharisees had heard about him baptizing. And not that it was him, it tells us at the beginning of the chapter, but that it was his disciples. And they were being becoming quite, if you like, aggravated toward him and very unappreciative, unappreciative of him and the ministry. So Jesus is heading to Galilee, and Galilee is his home ground, as it were. He was born in Bethlehem in the south, but he grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And so as he departs for Galilee, John notes in verse 44, he's going to Galilee, but Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. But this was the motive for him to go to Galilee. You would think if Galilee was his home ground and a prophet was without honor, he's going to go to where he's going to receive honor, right? If they're not interested where I'm coming from, then let me go to people who are. But Jesus didn't have that mentality. He was going to the people who weren't interested. 
Now it seems in verse 45 like maybe he got it wrong because it says that the Galileans welcomed him. They were at Jerusalem. They were at the feast. They saw the, the, the works that he'd done. And so they were glad to see him. Does this not contradict what Jesus himself has said about his own people? That he would be without honor, yet they receive him in an honorable fashion? Well, our minds are thrown back to chapter 2. Where in chapter 2, Jesus said this about the people who expressed interest. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them because he recognized that these people at this time were in a place where they were nothing more than fair-weather friends. They were impressed by the works. They were impressed by the miracles. They were impressed by the signs. It caused them to have an appreciation for him up to a certain, a certain extent. But what it hadn't led to was repentance. Where they actually became more aware of their own sinfulness and their need for him. And so likewise, even as Jesus is heading to Galilee... To those who were, he knew, were not really interested in, in him. Despite the outward appearance, he recognized that they needed to meet with him. They needed to know him. They needed to be confronted with who he really is. In order that they too might have opportunity to repent and believe. And we see a contrast here because the Samaritans, what happened when he was in Samaria? The lady went, spoke to him. She was like, whoa, you're a prophet. Whoa, I'm going to run and tell my people. And they all came and they were like, you know what? We didn't just come and believe because of what you've said, but we now believe because we've seen for ourselves. We believe that this is the Messiah. And so there was such a, a receptivity there that even when he was getting ready to leave in verse 40, they said, no, no, stay with us some more. They genuinely had received Christ. And yet we see that genuine, humble, repentant reception contrasted against this superficial, shallow, unrepentant acceptance. A people who were only interested in Jesus because he was sensational. Only interested in Jesus because of what he could offer. Now already, it feels a little challenging, right? Because where do we find ourselves in that spectrum? Where do we find ourselves between those two contrasts? Are we only interested in Jesus because of what he has to offer us? Or are we interested in Jesus because we recognize our deep need for him? For him, not just what he gives, not just what he offers, but for him. Thankfully, Jesus' intention 
to go to those who he knew wasn't interested speaks of us speaks to us of his great grace the great grace with which he loves mankind the great grace with which he loves us because even if we find ourselves in a place where you know what really and truly if we're honest with ourselves we're only into jesus because of what he can do for us he's still interested in us if it was down to me i'd be like they're big friends i'm not interested in them they only want me for what i can do for them you know them ones when people are only phone you when they want something and you kind of feel like, huh? Hello? What can I do for you? I know, I know a certain brother. <laughs> mention no names, mention no names, mention no names. I'm looking at the ceiling. I know a certain brother, when he answers the phone, you don't even get hello sometimes. <laughs> what can I do for you? <laughs> Let him who has ears to hear. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> and I love the brother for it. <laughs> Amen? You know what I'm saying, Bertram? <laughs> because sometimes we find ourselves in that place where we know that actually some people only really are interested in us when we have something to offer them. But Jesus is not that guy. Jesus is not the one who's going to feel offended at that. Jesus is not the one who's going to dismiss or neglect us, even when we find ourselves in those places. Sometimes we might find ourselves go through seasons of prayerlessness until the problems hit. And when the problems hit, that's when we, we choose to hit our knees, as it were. And we feel so guilty because we're like, Lord, I know I shouldn't even be speaking to you right now. I haven't even been reaching out to you. I haven't been close to you. But Lord, if only you would hear me in this moment. And why is it that we even continue to pray and speak to the Lord? It's because he's great, gracious. It's because he is merciful. And even though we don't deserve it, He will hear us. And so Jesus makes his way to Galilee, to a people who weren't really, they only had a superficial interest in him. And yet, he makes his way there with an intent to minister among the people that they too might see the light that has dawned among them. And so, in verses 46 and 47, we're told of the official who comes to Jesus. He hears that Jesus is back in town. He's back in town and he has a need. And, and this, this, this really kind of struck me as I, as I was going over it and just really, um, thinking about it. This man, his son was ill, he had a fever and, his, and he was dying. He was close to death, we're told. And yet when he heard that Jesus had come from Galilee, he went to look for Jesus. He had a need that he recognized only Jesus could meet. And he was grateful when he heard that Jesus had come back. 
And he took opportunity to go and look for Jesus. Now imagine if Jesus had chosen to dismiss the Galileans and go somewhere else, spend more time with the Samaritans and so on. This opportunity to minister life to this official son would have been passed. And we can be comforted and encouraged by that, that God knows our needs. God knows our needs and he is at work even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when we can't see it. Even when it seems like God is long. Lord, you're long. Why is it taking so long, Lord? I mean, this official son was... Jesus is maybe kind of venting some of his frustration knowing where this guy as a fellow Galilean, where he's at. Maybe this is... This might come across like Jesus saying, you only want me for what I can do for you. But Jesus was making a statement that was really not even about this guy. As we'll see in a minute. Jesus was acknowledging the Galilean problem. Because even as Jesus says, unless you see signs, he's, he's using you in the plural. It's not obvious to us as we look at it. But he's using you as in, unless you lot, unless you will see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Quite in contrast to the Samaritans even. So Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the world about her life. There were no signs and wonders performed among them. And yet they believed. But Jesus wasn't making a complaint about this individual, about this official. He was acknowledging the state of their heart. And yet the official persists. Please come before my child dies. Now, as Jesus stands there, we see the compassion of Jesus. He says to him, go, your son will live. And then in verse 50, and look there with me if you will. It says that the man believed the sign that Jesus gave him. Is that what it says? It says the man believed the miracle that Jesus performed. Is that what it says? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man didn't see a miracle, he didn't see a sign, he didn't see a wonder. Jesus didn't do some kind of miracle before his eyes in order to give him assurance that what he says is true. The man understood the integrity of Christ. He appreciated the power of Jesus' word and he believed the word. And in simple response to the word, he went on his way. He didn't even ask, yeah, Jesus, I know that that's what you're saying, but please come anyway, because you need to lay your hands on him. May we be a people who believe the word. That we believe the word, that we not have to be reliant on miracles, signs and wonders. 
We're not even having to be reliant on seeing the answer to prayer before we believe that God answers prayer. God's will is his word. God's word comes from him. His word emanates out of who he is. If we can't believe God's word, we cannot believe God. We're not truly trusting God because God is one with his word. And so like this man, may we be those who believe the word of God. And the reality is that experiences will change. Even when it comes to miracles, signs and wonders. We're told in Second Thessalonians that the man of sin will come and perform lying signs and wonders. Remember back in Exodus when Moses went into Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's standing up there, chewing his gums. Now. And Moses throws down his rod. And it turns into a snake. And it says, what, what happened? Pharaoh's magicians threw down their rods and they turned into snakes as well. By whatever means they achieved that. But Moses' snake was greater than theirs and ate them up. See, we understand that the, the enemy, Satan, is a deceiver. And for those of us who are reliant upon miracle signs and wonders, Satan is able to provide lots of distractions and deceptions to keep us occupied. And yet we recognize that God is faithful and, tr and true. That he is true to his word. And if God has said it, we can take it to the bank. And so Jesus speaks the word. And the man went on his way and found his child to be healed. And John acknowledges in verse 54 that this is the second sign Jesus had turned water into wine in Galilee. He's now healed this official son. And the revelation of who he is is going forth. The people are, are coming to appreciate and understand that by means of these signs, his identity is being made clear. In the same way that a sign is not an end in itself, but it points the direction to where we ought to be looking, to where we ought to be going. These signs point with clarity to the fact that Jesus truly is God in the flesh. For who else can speak a word and bring about deliverance from death? Jesus can. And so we're encouraged that even in the realm of physical sickness, Jesus is Lord. And he's able to command healing by the word of his power. And we are encouraged by this. And yet, for some of us, we're challenged. Because we see Jesus heal this 
official son, bring him back from death. And yet we consider those many occasions when we've prayed to see healing and it hasn't happened. And we felt discouraged, we felt let down and we've even felt that God's word has failed. Is it such that God is going to heal in, in every situation as we come to him in prayer? Some would have us to think that. Some would have us to think that actually if you're sick, you're a second class Christian. If you've prayed for healing and not received it, then there's something wrong with you. You don't have enough faith. You don't have enough power. And the, the other one, which they don't generally tend to say, but we're often left feeling is, well then, does God really love me? Are things really right between me and God? Because I pray to see healing. And there was none. Let's just clarify a few things in regard to that. <clears throat> we appreciate that we are invited to call on God. That he would minister healing in those times of need. God invites us to. Look at James 5. We see in this three occasions where there is reference to prayer in connection with healing, suffering or sickness. James 5 from verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now that could be suffering of any kind. Including sickness. We're invited to pray. Why would we be invited or instructed to pray if God were not prepared to answer our prayer? Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the elders are also instructed to pray. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And again, in verse 16, and pray for one another that you may be healed. So we see three instances in these few verses that connect prayer with relief of suffering, sickness, or the provision of healing. So God invites us to come to him in prayer in those times of need. God instructs us to come to him. And actually, for many of us, we, we, we actually are unfaithful and disobedient in that we don't go to God. Now, no one's saying that you can't take medication. I am a firm believer that the knowledge and understanding that we have as, as humans comes from God. That the knowledge and understanding of medical science comes from God. So taking medication, seeing a doctor is not working against God or demonstrating a lack of faith. 
fundamentally we trust that the Lord is able to work through various means and many means and any means that he may choose including through the, the effective application of that knowledge that he's given so don't let nobody put you on any guilt trip oh you've seen a doctor where's your faith sister you taking medication where's your faith brother say my faith is in God the giver of knowledge and understanding to create these things. My faith is in man. When I take medication, if I ever take medication, I'm not at that point subscribing trust in man. Trust in the pharmaceutical company. Not at all. Man is fallible. Man is flawed. Man is limited. But I trust that God is able to work through that means if he so chooses. But so often for us, that's where it stops. And we can rely on that means alone and not trust that God is able to work through other means. So we're invited to pray. Now, the basis upon which we're invited to pray is stated in two texts, New Testament and Old Testament. And I think it's important that we understand these verses because these are verses that Christians will stand on when calling on God for healing. And rightly so. But let's understand a few things about this. Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Now... Consider this verse, consider the context of this verse. What is this verse primarily talking about? Transgressions, iniquities, chastisement that brought us peace. Is it talking about a physical condition? It's primarily talking about sin and the sickness of our souls. And so when it speaks of healing, it's speaking primarily into that context. The healing that works from the inside out. And with his stripes, we are healed. We are made whole. Spiritually, we are renewed. We are made new. Now that's not to the exclusion of physical healing. Because we already looked at James 5. We already understand that within God's provision for his people, we're able to call on him for healing. But these verses do not primarily speak about physical healing. One of the first principles of rightly dividing the word is context. Now this verse is quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. And it's interesting yet again as we look at the context in which Peter quotes it. He himself bore our... Oh, uh, that's not sickness, right? It's, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed.
It sounds real different when you consider the context. When you consider what is actually being said by the writer. You see, the capacity to live unto righteousness comes from the fact that Christ bore our sins. That we might die to sin and has healed us through the imparted work of his spirit, enabling us to be healed within and live unto righteousness. So whereas people take these verses, divorce the statement from its context, by his stripes I've been healed and expect that I must see healing. In doing so, creating a false expectation, which, as Proverb tells us, only leads to disappointment. See, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with the expectation of God that is misinformed by the wrong interpretation of Scripture, the wrong use of Scripture. You see, God does heal and he does so according to his will. And some would say, well, it's always God's will to heal. And I say, my friend, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Now, we see these tremendous verses of hope in Revelation. Revelation 21. And let's rightly consider these verses and just make some honest observations of these verses. So, 21 verses 1 to 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So the, 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 the old order had passed away at the point at which the Apostle John is observing this. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now, is that speaking about now? Is that speaking about this time in which we live? We still live in a world where there's crying, where there's pain, where there's mourning, where there's death. We still live in the old order. We're still living in the time of the former things. So is it right that we would expect that this promise, which is for the time of the new order, the new creation, be totally and completely fulfilled now? It doesn't make sense. Because if that was the case, 
John wouldn't be speaking about the new order and the new creation, at which point the Lord will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. This is the fulfillment of the kingdom. This is the, 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 the completion of the establishing of the kingdom that we're looking at in Revelation 21. We are now in the period of the inception or the, the inauguration of the kingdom. And we experience kingdom blessings now, but not without limit, not without hindrance, without restriction. Because the kingdom is now, but is also not yet in its fullness completed. So in as much as we can call on God to heal, and we can ask him to work in and among us, because Jesus has, through his blood, purchased, he's bought the opportunity for us to go to God. If Jesus hadn't done it, we, we wouldn't even have the right to go to God and ask anything of him. But Jesus has purchased, he has bought the opportunity for us to go to God and ask for healing. And that God will grant that according to his will. In Deuteronomy 29.29, it says that the secret things are God's. The secret things are the Lord's. But that which is revealed is for us. You see, there is a general will of God, and if you like, a secret will of God, a specific will of God. And we understand that the provision of healing has been made. It's a bit like... You know, the, the cable providers, the, the, the internet providers say fiber optics is available. <laughs> the highest speed internet is available. But check if it's in your area. You see, the, the technology is there and the service is, is being rolled out. But not completely to every neighborhood and, and every estate and every street why not well they know that we don't know why not they're the one who's offering the service they're the one who's determining where it's going to be and where it's not going to be that's according to their will and purpose we just inquire with an expectation and we accept the response so when we moved into this building and we, we spoke to the, the internet providers and it's like, nothing less than fiber optics. Come on, man. I'm sorry, it's not available. What am I going to do? Go and blaze a fire at the internet provider and make up noise and say, why isn't it available? That's up to them. And so often people want to blaze a fire at God. And say, God, why, why is there no healing? When I've, I've, I've prayed in Jesus' name according to you. Well, the Lord knows best. And we must accept that which he grants from his hand. And there will be times when we accept healing because he gives it. And there are times when he sees fit not to. And do we know why? No, that's his business. Why are we trying, trying to trouble the secret things that belong to him? 
and get ourselves confused and distressed and disappointed. We're just encouraged in the fact that God is good. Christ has provided the opportunity for healing and we can go to God with expectation yet prepared and willing to accept his sovereign will. We see this in the life of Paul. Second Corinthians 12. He recognized that he was given a, a messenger, a fall in the flesh from a messenger of Satan. And he cried out to the Lord three times in verse 8. He pleaded with him. And the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Even in our weakness, even in our sickness, God is able to display his power and bring glory to his name. You see, the health and wealth gospel that prosperity, prosperity heterodoxy will tell us the only way you can glorify God is if you're rich and if you're, if you're healthy and if you're on top and not beneath. That's not what 2 Corinthians 12 tells us. That actually, in our weakness, God's strength, his power is made perfect. And so Paul then goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, it's not that he didn't ask. It's not that he didn't expect, but he accepted that which came from the hand of God, recognizing that even in that, it is to his glory. There's been more than a few people who have shared the testimony of how God has kept them in sickness, in suffering, in trial, kept them with a irrepressible hope, a joy that's inexplicable, a peace that is beyond understanding, and the, and the unbeliever has looked at them in their suffering. How can you be so joyous? How can you have such hope? As they've looked at that believer in that place of suffering that they too, they, everyone suffers in some way at some point. Everyone's touched by suffering. And yet it serves as such a testimony when we're able to stand graciously and gratefully for God's goodness, even in the midst of our suffering. Some of you may have heard of this lady. I um, don't know if any of you know who she is, just looking at the picture. That's right, Joni Erickson Tada. And at the age of 17, she became a quadriplegic. Basically, lost the use of her limbs from the neck down. It happened in a diving accident where she, she dived into, into some waters head first and misjudged 
the, the depth. It was a shallow water and she broke her neck. And from that time forward, she has been a quadriplegic. She said this, my weakness, that is, my quadriplegia is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. You see, we can tend to be like the Galileans in our hearts and only want from God the things that please us, including good health. And we can want those things more than we really want Jesus. But what if God was purposed that through our sickness, we would be closer to Jesus, that we would have more of Jesus and that we would glorify him more greatly? Would we be content with that? Would we be accepting of that? May the Lord teach us to suffer well unto his glory. Not that we don't seek him for relief. Not that we don't ask. We ask expectantly because we know God can. And yet we ask prepared to accept God's will. We live in the time of the former things. We live in the period of the old order. And there will come a time when there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. And we will receive glorified bodies. And we will rejoice forevermore. Joni Erickson, I heard her say in a sermon I listened to recently, she talks about the fact that she looked forward to being in heaven. And she um, knows it's, it's not like it's, it's not going to happen. And she knows it's not a biblical idea, but she'd like to take her wheelchair to heaven. She'd like to take her wheelchair to heaven. Imagine that. And she said that um, I'd, I'd, I'd point to the wheelchair and I'd say, Jesus, thank you for this wheelchair. Because it drew me closer to you. And you can throw it into hell now if you like. There's a time when all suffering and sickness, physical, mental, emotional, all of it is going to descend into the abyss. It's going to descend into the pit and we will be freed of it all. And we're able to look forward to that time with great hope. And yet in the meantime, may we be those who suffer well, trusting in the word of God. Not allowing our experience to determine our understanding of God's word. We ask God for healing. We don't see it. And so we mean, okay, God's word can't really mean that then. Why does God even bother invite us to pray for healing? And we allow our experience to 
define our understanding of what God's word means. No, we should never do that. God's word always defines our understanding of our experience, not the other way around. We don't use our experience to interpret God's word. We use God's word to interpret our experience. And you see, the thing is this. And, and this for me was just a phenomenal, mind-blowing notion. I recommend a sermon to you by John Piper. It's called The Suffering of Christ and the Sovereignty of God. It's on the Desiring God website. The suffering of Christ and the sovereignty of God. And if you've ever wrestled with why is it that we have to suffer? Why is there suffering in this life? Even for us as Christians. If you've ever wrestled with that or you, you know people who wrestle with that. I would recommend this. I've never heard anything like it. And one of the things he communicates in this sermon is that it was always God's plan for suffering to be part of the human experience. It's too deep. And so we understand that sin entered the world and sickness came into the world by reason of sin. Because of sin, there is sickness and suffering. And yet, that wasn't an afterthought. That was always part of the plan of God. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that all things are to the, the, the praise of God's glorious grace in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 5, and this is the, where the sermon, John, um, John Piper's sermon is based on. It talks about the fact that Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, Jesus was already recognized as slain in heaven. Sin, suffering, the cross, none of that was just an afterthought. God didn't, it was all part of God's original plan. And in order for Christ to suffer for our sins, so that we could be justified and made right eternally, eternally, with God, Christ had to suffer. And so without suffering in the human experience, our sin would never be atoned for. He said that everything else is subordinate, is submitted to this plan. Everything else is put in place for the sake of this plan. That Christ would suffer for sin. That's the plan he's talking about. The display of the greatness of the glory of the grace of God in the suffering of the beloved, Jesus. That is the goal of the creation and the continuing of the universe. Why is there suffering? Because it was part of God's plan that Jesus would suffer for sin so that all who believe would have that hope of an eternity without suffering because there's no sin. 
Because sin has been dealt with at the cross. God is so faithful. God is so good. And our suffering and our affliction is but momentary. We'll be in heaven for a thousand years and our lives on earth will feel like a blink, like a moment. God is so faithful. And so may we Look to God expectantly and receive from God acceptingly. Knowing that he is good and that he has revealed his goodness in Christ Jesus. May we suffer well. May we not be like the Galileans who are only interested in Jesus for what he can do for them. But may we be committed to the true purpose for our existence, and that is the glory of God. Let's stand. Father God, suffering is hard. Enduring sickness, Lord, is difficult. Lord, there are so many who have suffered so many who are sick, so many who, Lord, we have prayed for and watched die. And yet, Lord, we thank you. We thank you with all of our hearts that even for those who we've prayed for and they've died physically, Lord, we know that you've answered those prayers for healing because in you, they are now well. Eternally. We know, Lord, that only comes by your grace that is revealed in Christ who has suffered for our sin. Lord, may we repent. May we repent of our self-centered, self-gratifying desires to be relieved of those things which, Lord, you, you purpose to glorify yourself through, to show yourself strong. Help us, Lord, to trust your word. To trust you with all of our hearts. Be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.